Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you gather us once a week at least as a whole body together. And you do that because you have a message for us, not only individually, but as a whole church. And so we surrender ourselves to you, Spirit of God, that you may speak to us personally, but that you also speak to us corporately, that we will become individually more and more like Jesus, and as a church, we will become more and more like Jesus. So, Spirit of God, we surrender ourselves to you right now in Christ's name. Amen. So, Adam did it, and Eve did it, and you and I do it. Whenever we face temptation and give in to it, we blame someone else. We switch it. Watch, watch what Adam did. When God said to him, what did you do? God told him what he was not to do. Went ahead and did it. And when God confronted him, look who he blamed. The man said, the woman you put here. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. But notice that he shifted the blame to two people. To Eve and to God. You put this dangerous creature here with me. You put the seductress here with me. You are to blame, first and foremost, and then Eve is to blame that I ate from the tree. Did God accept his, his, his lies? Not at all. In fact, he was supposed to step in and protect Eve when she was being tempted. You go read Genesis chapter 1 and you'll notice, while Eve was being tempted, Adam was there. And Adam should have stepped in and said to the serpent, Stop! What you're saying is not true. And stop. Why is a snake talking? And stop. <laughs> Why are you trying to lead my wife? Adam should have stepped in, but he didn't. It's one of those really intriguing questions. Why did Adam not step in and protect Eve? And the best answer I've ever found, by the way, he just stood there with his hands in his pockets. Well, literally, you know. But. <laughs> Why didn't he step in and protect her? Because the coward was watching to see if she died. And if she died eating the fruit, he'd be going, I didn't eat. I'm fine. Well, okay. Eve, bye-bye. It was nice knowing you, but you're done. So he shifted the blame, not only to Eve, but he blamed God as well, which is one of the common things we do. That when things go wrong in our lives, when we make bad choices and we end up suffering from it, how often we will turn and we will blame God or blame something or someone else. Do you remember the, the teenage boy who already had his license suspended because he'd been arrested for a DUI, and his parents bought him a brand new truck, and he went out driving drunk and killed four people? Do you remember what his excuse was? Affluenza. He was suffering from affluence, that his parents spoiled him, and as a result of his parents spoiling him, he wasn't responsible for the death of four people, his parents were responsible for it. And remember when, when a man killed a, uh, one of the, the guys up in, in San Francisco and he was put on trial. Do you remember what his defense was? His defense was that he had eaten too much junk food. And as a result of eating so much junk food, he was not responsible for the fact that he committed murder. And Dick, I'm going to borrow your line from this. It, it was called the Twinkie defense. Okay. Understand, and this Dick gave me this, that, that if me committing murder was permissible 
for eating junk food. Do you know how much danger you're in right now? We always switch the blame away from ourselves rather than facing it. Blame society, blame culture, blame our upbringing, blame everything else, but don't do everything you can to avoid taking responsibility. Somebody figured this out. If you took each of the groups in this country that claim to be groups of people who, are, uh, who, are, who have uh, uh, some kind of protective, uh, what's the word, protective uh, rights in this country, women and, and blacks and LGBT and everybody else, if you add all of the groups up in our country who have a right to claim to be protected, it adds up to 374% of the population. All of us can fall into one of the categories where we can say, well, the reason I did it is because I'm part of this, this, this part of society, and therefore that's why I commit these kind of crimes. But when you stand before God, and we have committed a sin, where does the blame go? I even saw a baby's diaper once that said, the devil made me do it. <laughs> What's interesting, in the passage we're going to study today, the devil doesn't show up at all. In the letter that James wrote, the very first letter written to the churches, the devil shows up later on in the letter. But he's writing to people who, at this point in time, are going through really tough trials. They're Jewish Christians living scattered all over the world, the known world at that time. And the reason they're scattered is because of persecution. They've had to leave their homes. They've had to leave their jobs. They've had to leave their families. And they're scattered. They're, they're refugees all over the place. They're people who are being persecuted because they're Jewish, and they're being persecuted by the Jews because they're Christians. And so they're facing all kinds of financial tr trouble, all kinds of deep struggles in life, along with the normal struggles that all of us go through. And as he writes a letter to them, James, who is the brother of Jesus, who became a follower of Jesus only after the resurrection, James writes a letter, and we think it's the first letter ever written to the churches and to Christians. He writes to them and he says, understand this, the trials you're going through are not beyond God's ability to redeem them. And he says, when you go through trials like this, trust God, cling to Him, hold on to Him, because God will use these difficulties to build your character. And when he's, as He builds your character, eventually He's going to reward you for being faithful to Him, and you're going to know a joy that, you, that can't be experienced here on earth. And so he says, so understand that when trials come your way, Trust God, and He will use them for your benefit, no matter how difficult those trials may be. But then there comes a time when you're facing a trial, and that trial becomes a temptation to do something wrong, to do something evil. And at a time like that, we would say, well, God, you exposed me to this trial, and if I sin, then you're to blame. You're ultimately to blame for evil in my life. And so James anticipates what would happen in all of our lives when we face trials and as a result of that trial, we cross the line. And instead of trusting God, we then, as we cross the line, we turn and we commit a sin against God. So, is this a common factor that we all face? That when we do something wrong, we try to find a scapegoat, we try to find someone or something else that we can blame for what we did wrong? And when we face tough times in life, those tough times, sometimes we can look for an easy way out a way to avoid the feelings of the tough time, a way to get beyond the stress of the moment through a pill or a bottle or a powder or something or a relationship. Do anything so we don't have to deal with it. 
when we fall into sin, who's to blame? And James's answer to us that we are. And he points out right as he starts us that God is never, ever the source of evil. Ever. We like to blame God. And we like to believe that God is the one who brings evil into our lives. James says that's never true. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is 100% pure. 100% holy. And God himself and evil live in two totally different realms. There's no connection between them. And so God never, ever does evil in our lives. God never requires us to do evil. He doesn't tempt us to do evil. By the way, the word test and tempt is exactly the same word in Greek. It's a Greek word, parasmos, and it depends on its context, how we translate it. So when you face a difficulty and when you face a challenge in life, God can use it as a test to build your character, to strengthen your grip on him. But if you choose not to trust God, but rather to turn to something else, maybe yourself, then it becomes a temptation toward evil. You with me there? Okay, you don't understand this because you just don't live where Raymond lives, so let me give you an illustration. You go over to Costco, and you're walking down the aisle. And as you're walking down the aisle, lo and behold, one of those chocolate cakes. Do you know those chocolate cakes from Costco? Those enormous chocolate cakes. They are so delicious and so moist. And you're walking down the aisle, and there's one of those chocolate cakes. And right now, it's just a test. Okay? It's just a test. And you look at it, and you walk on. But after you've walked on, you go, hmm, I like those cakes. Hmm. Do you see how it's beginning to switch? Okay, now, maybe not for you. Maybe... Maybe you have a medical reason why you need chocolate cake. <laughs> I don't. So if you have a medical reason why you need chocolate cake and you go back and you buy that chocolate cake, you haven't sinned. You're just meeting a need. But not Raymond. So I go beyond it and I go, <laughs> and I go back to it and I take that chocolate cake the test has turned into a temptation. I have crossed the line and I'm doing something that I know I shouldn't do. Ladies, you don't understand this, but guys, we're walking down Costco and a really pretty girl comes past us. And you look at her and go, wow, you haven't sinned yet. Okay? God wired you as a man that when you see a pretty girl, something inside of you goes, wow. Okay? You haven't sinned yet. Understand that. Just, just the temptation doesn't mean that, you, that you've sinned. Just that fact. This is a test. And so she walks past you. How do you pass the test? You don't turn around. It's that simple. You don't turn around. Nor, guys, do you think, I think what I'll do is I'll go down to the end of this aisle and I'll pretend I'm shopping down this aisle. <laughs> And I might just by accident bump into her again. Do you see how a test and a trial can be the same thing all wrapped up in one? And he says, listen, understand this. When you're tempted, you cannot blame God. He's going to say the blame lies right within you. It's kind of like when sunshine shines down onto a city dump. That light does not become contaminated by the dump. Two separate things. 
And so God is the author of all good things. He brings this light down into our lives. He brings life to us. He is never the one who causes us to be tempted. James says, I am responsible for the evil that enters my life. I am. You look back through human history all the way back to Adam and Eve. You, where, what is the source of evil? We, human beings, are the source of evil. When we chose, when Adam and Eve chose, and we would have if we'd been there, when they chose to decide, I will decide what is good and bad. I will, I will be equal to God. The moment they did that, they brought evil into this world. Evil is something that human beings create. God did not create it. We create it. And in our own lives, we are the ones who allow evil to enter our lives. He describes a slippery slope. It starts with desire. It moves to self-deception. It moves to disobedience. And the ultimate end of all sin is death of some kind. Ultimately, eternal death, but there's deaths of all kind that we face during this life. He says you can't blame God, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. That word desire is again one of those words that can be translated as, as in two different ways, negative or positive. The word desire describes the natural uh, appetites we have, a natural appetite for food. It's good, very good. God created inside of us. And it's a good thing that we then eat food to keep ourselves alive. How can that appetite go wrong? Twinkies. Chocolate cakes. French fries. No, not French fries. We won't talk about those. <laughs> a natural appetite can become gluttony. And so a way to understand the difference between a natural appetite and an evil desire is when a natural appetite is expressed in a way that is immoral or to an immoral extent. With me there? So that's a definition to me of what a lust is. A desire that is expressed in an illegitimate manner and to an illegitimate extent. God built the desire for sex into every single human being. Okay, It's just a natural, beautiful desire. And it was created by God to be fulfilled within the safety of marriage. Once we've committed ourselves to one another for life, God intends it to be enjoyed within the protection of marriage. Natural, beautiful desire. Nothing wrong with it at all. Absolutely holy, absolutely pure. But when you take it outside of marriage, and you now express your sexuality outside of marriage, you've now started on the slippery slope. The moment you go outside of marriage through extramarital connection of some kind, the moment you express it out here, it's now become lust. It's now become one of these desires. And what it is, is it's the first step on the line down. When you take desire and you allow it to turn into a lust, then you start to deceive yourself. Then you move to disobedience against God's rules, and it leads to death. And remember this, when God gives laws, it's not to restrict our fun. When God gives laws, it's because he's given them to protect us from ourselves. And to protect us ultimately from Satan too. He gives his laws because he knows how we can live safely and beautifully in this life. When we disobey his laws, we're setting ourselves up for some kind of a death somewhere down the line. So James says each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Those words dragged away and enticed come from hunting and fishing world of those days. What a hunter wants to do is he wants to entice an animal to come closer so he can kill it. 
What a fisherman wants to do is he wants to entice a fish to come and bite his hook so that he can capture it. And of course, it'll lead that fish to death. Now, think how stupid it would be if I was a fish and I'm swimming along. And as I'm swimming along, I see what Raymond usually puts down in the water, which is just a naked hook. I actually do put bait on it, but it usually falls off when I cast it. <laughs> so a fish comes swimming along and sees Raymond's naked hook. Is he going to go up to and go, I love hooks, <laughs> and eat it? Of course not, because that doesn't tempt it at all. You want to put something on there that that fish thinks he can't live without, that he's got to have it. And so what you want to do is hang something on there that will attract that fish. Now, no self-respecting fish is going to swim up to this hook and go, hmm, I can improve on this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go find something that I actually like. And what I'm going to do is go find that something that I like, and I'm going to swim back to the hook, and I'm going to hang what I like on the hook, and then I'm going to bite it. Can you imagine a fish doing something that stupid? Of course not. That's what we do. God warns, listen, you break my laws. Understand, you're going to expose yourself to a horrible death of some kind. Something's going to die. Something's going to go terribly wrong. So what we do is we seduce ourselves. We say, I won't get hurt. I won't be, I won't be, 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 I won't die. I can do this. And so we tempt ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We tell ourselves all kinds of lies so that we can then go and we can take the bait and we can put ourselves up to it. And James says that's what we do. So a temptation test comes along. And it's just a test. And you can trust in God and move on beyond it. Or you can go, <laughs> I can make this a little bit more attractive. I can make this more satisfying. I can do something that will feed my internal lusts. And so that's what we do. We begin to seduce ourselves. We're going to see in a few moments, God always makes a way of escape. If you're one of his children, at this moment, God says, uh-uh, there's a way out of this. And what we have to choose to do is, am I going to suppress it? Or am I going to trust God? Notice this. Everyone is tempted by, when he's by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. It's we are the ones who tempt ourselves, who drag ourselves away toward it. And by the way, he tells us, whenever you face temptation, it's going to come. Every single one of us is going to face temptation somewhere along the line. Okay, be honest. How many of you are still thinking about that chocolate cake? <laughs> I actually thought of buying one, but then I'd have had to hide it back there and fight you after church. Isn't that funny? The thought is still there. Ladies, that's what it's like when a guy sees a pretty girl. Okay? <laughs> Long afterwards, she's still there. In his mind, just like the chocolate cake has been hovering in our, in our brains, okay? What we do is we then seduce ourselves. And we move beyond what is just a test. And we seduce ourselves to go that next step. And by our own evil desire, we're dragged away and enticed. 
And then he warns us, the destination of temptation is always death. It's always a death of some kind. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Death is always the end of that product. Always. A death of a relationship. A death of, 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 a, of a friendship. A death of some kind in your own life. Ultimately, perhaps even a physical death. Now, hang there with me. James warns at the end of his letter. He says, understand this, that sometimes when a Christian has been tempted into sin and has continued in that sin, ultimately God may take their physical life. Not their spiritual life. You can't lose your salvation. I don't believe the rest of the scriptures give us that, that truth. But ultimately, if a believer, as a believer, I continue to rebel against God and rebel against God and rebel against God, at the end of the time when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. It, this is actually uses a, a word that comes from the animal world. It spawns death. At the end of it, if you insist on continuing to do this, or if it's excessive enough, God may terminate your physical life. Now, whatever happens, if somebody Christian dies, don't think, hmm, I wonder what he was doing. Okay, all of us die eventually. But Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, said the way you guys have been abusing one another in your church, the way you've been attacking one another, the way you've been robbing from one another, the way you're competing against one another, the way you've turned this church into a place of absolute misery, some of you have fallen sick and some of you have died. Because God said, I'm not going to let you mess with my church. I'm not going to let you harm my church. You harm my church, I'm going to take you out of there. Did they lose their salvation? No, but they lost their lives. And they were taken out. And so the ultimate thing, he says, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. You know what sin is? Sin means to miss the mark of God's perfection. It, it's a Greek word. It came from the archery world. Hamartia meant when you shot at, an, at a, at a uh, uh, target. target thing. <laughs> I was going to say person, but you shot at a target. <laughs> and you missed the target. You are martyrs. You missed it. And God says, listen. I've set these standards out there, not because I want to rob you of fun, not because I want to make your life miserable. I want you to shoot for that. And when you shoot for that and you miss it, that's called hamartia. And so when we sin, it's because we have fallen short of the perfection of God, and we all do. Everybody, at one time or another, falls short of the perfection of God. We, none of us can get there. That's why Jesus died on the cross. But that's what happens. We deceive ourselves. It leads to sin, where we break God's laws, which are designed to protect us, and then, if it's full grown, it gives birth to death. And see, the weird thing is, we, we, we look at a pill, and we know that pill could kill you. We look at a powder, and we think, if I snort that up my nostrils, people die from this. We look at a bottle, and know some people die because they drink too much of this kind of stuff. We look at pornography, and we think, I can get away with this. Nobody knows. But it has a way of poisoning you internally. And something dies each time we reach for it. Every now and then we have snakes in our property. Probably if you live in this area, you do too. And you walk outside and there's a rattler on the sidewalk. And you look at the rattler and you think, huh, I'm just going to move you, okay? And so you reach down and you pick up the rattler by its tail. Would you do something that ridiculous? There are some people that do that, by the way. Bizarre creatures that they are. You don't, you, pick it, you don't pick it up because you know it'll turn and it'll bite me. 
And if it turns and bites me, I'm going to possibly die. We don't do that. But you come to the pill and you come to the powder and you come to the, the, the bottle. And you come to these things and you know in the back of your mind, ultimately these things can bite and these things can kill. But we go there and it's like picking up a rattler. You, you remember that legend of a man hiking along and he comes to the base of a hill and there's a snake lying at the base of the hill and he goes, ee. And he starts to go around it. And the snake says, excuse me, sir. I've got to get to the top of this hill. Would you please carry me up? And the man says to the snake, are you kidding? If I pick you up, you're going to bite me. And the snake says, please. I need to get home to my family. And I'm so tired. I can't make it up this hill. Please, would you pick me up? And he says, no. If I pick you up, you're going to bite me. And the snake says, all right, look, let me make a promise. If you'll carry me to the top of the hill, then I will never bite you, and none of my descendants will ever bite your children. Would that be a good deal? He goes, no, oh, maybe. He says, okay, please carry me up. So the man goes, okay, and he picks up the snake, and he carries it to the top of the hill, and he puts the snake down on the ground, and the snake says, thank you so much. And then the snake bites him. And he goes, you, you promised you wouldn't do that. And the snake says to him, you knew what I was when you picked me up. And that's the thing we have to be aware of. There are so many things that speak to our desires and turn them into lusts, and we do it, and we seduce ourselves. And it leads ultimately to death of some kind. It could be a death of a relationship. It could be death of your innocence. It could be death of, 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 of someone else as a result of it, like that kid who killed four people. He survived. They died. We see that all of the time. could ultimately be physical death. And so, James wants us to understand, God is not the one who tempts you. You tempt yourself. In fact, the very opposite. God is the source of everything good. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The father of the heavenly lights was a Jewish way of describing God the creator who created the heavenly lights that constantly pour down goodness upon the earth. They pour light. They pour life. They give us direction. And the father of those heavenly lights is the God who gives us good things. And every good thing that comes to us comes from him. That's why we're told to give thanks, by the way, so that we're aware of the ways in which God is blessing us. I was watching TV a few nights ago, and I noticed a family getting together, and they were having a meal together and having all kinds of fun together. And I was sitting there and feeling really blue, kind of like, I don't have that anymore. Used to be a time when families would come over to my house, and we'd have Thanksgiving and Christmas, but my kids have moved away, and I don't have that anymore. And I was feeling really sorry for myself. And then the thought came to me from this. The Father of the heavenly lights gave me that kind of time once in my life. There was a period of time when my family would come over and we'd have Thanksgiving and Christmas together. And they were all there. And we had that experience. And I'm looking back and thinking, thank you, Lord God, that I did have that time. There are lots of people who've never had that, never been able to experience that. And boy, did it switch my brain just to be able to say, I did have that once. And thankfully, I had it once. I want it again, but I had it then. 
and I'm thankful for it. So that's one of the reasons to be thankful for that. There are so many good things, and every good thing that comes down to us comes from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God isn't good today and annoyed tomorrow. Today he blesses me, and tomorrow he wakes up in a bad mood and just makes my day miserable. God never changes. He is always the source of everything good and only good. And the ultimate good thing he, gives, he gave is he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The most incredible good gift he gave us is eternal life. If you've never yet believed in Jesus Christ, don't waste another day of your life, okay? We're born rebels against God, and we're born on the road to hell. And God made us with the ability to change our minds. Adam and Eve made the decision, I'm going to be God of my own life. God, you're not going to run my life. I'm going to run my own life and death into the world. And each one of us is, is born in that situation where we have to make a choice for ourselves. Will you let God be God of your life so that all of his good things can flow into you and eternal life? Or you're going to keep trying to run your own life, keep trying to reward your own life, keep trying to make your own life. God says it's very simple. Resign as God of your life and let Jesus become your God. And when he does, he gives you eternal life and he gives you the spirit of God to live within you, to guide you and direct you. He gives you all of these incredible gifts. Why waste another day of your life? If you have never yet accepted Christ as your Savior, I beg you to let Jesus come into your life. It's very simple. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I know I'm separated from God the Father. I know I've been running my own life. But I want you to come into my life. And I want you to give me direction. If you need any help in doing that, you don't really. You can just do it where you are right now. But if you need any help, talk to Tony, myself, John. We'd love to be able to introduce you to the Lord. Laurel, any of our leaders, we'd love to, to walk you through it. But if you've never yet accepted Christ as your Savior, this is the thing. He chose to give us birth, spiritual birth, through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, so, here I am, I'm going through a test. And as I'm going through this test, I notice that my own desires are wanting to turn it into a temptation. My own desires are trying to switch it over so that I can fulfill my lusts. What do we do at a time like that? Well, the Bible te teaches us that Jesus is our defender against temptation. The Spirit of God wrote this, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Here's an illustration somebody gave me. It's kind of like you're flying down the freeway. And you don't know that just around the bend there's a wreck. And you're going to fly and smash into that wreck and be injured. And as you're flying down the freeway... All of a sudden, God lights up an exit ramp to one side. Which way do we exit in this country? This side. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, South Africa is still there in my brain. He lights up an exit ramp, and he's got flashing lights. Get off now, And because I'm trying to save you. That's what God does. He knows that we're about to turn this thing into temptation, and the alarms go off. And he says, Raymond, take the exit. Raymond, take the exit. And Raymond can go, no, I want to keep going flat out. I don't care what's going to happen to me around that curve. Or I can take the exit ramp. And you take the exit ramp, and he takes you to safety. If you look back in your life, maybe you only have to go back to yesterday, but look back in your life, you will notice that there are times when a test is starting to become a temptation because of your own lusts. 
And at a time like that, God says, uh-uh, take the exit ramp. No, no, go the other way. Make the choice. It's amazing. You watch for it, it's going to happen when, when temptations come your way. And he writes in the book of Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, and this is talking about Jesus, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus has faced every kind of temptation we will ever face. And here's the interesting thing is, because he was God, he could not sin. And we go, well, that case, the temptation wasn't valid. Oh, no. It was actually more valid than what you and I experience. Because when a temptation gets strong enough and our evil desires get strong enough, we will go to it. Jesus didn't have the lust. And so when he faced a temptation coming his way, it came at him at 100%. Usually we get what, well, I went, I went, Raymond gets to about 5% and I give him, okay? He faced it 100% fully, so he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows the power of temptation. And so, therefore, he understands what it feels like when we are tempted. Let us then approach the, the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. When, temptation, when testing is, and your temptation is bubbling up, we go to Jesus and we find that he gives us mercy and he gives us help in time of need. We are not alone. That's the important thing to understand. We're not alone. And as we go through life, when these tests are turning into temptations, Jesus is right there to help us, to strengthen us, to guide us so that it won't turn into temptation. We, we've needed a new microphone on this pulpit, we used to have a microphone here. And the problem with the microphone here is that when people were here, they'd have their notes here and they would lean over and talk into the microphone. And they would lean over and they'd be, you know, and it's like, oh, we need a microphone here. So several months ago, we had bought the parts. But then as I looked at putting it up, it was like, mm. Mm. so I asked Larry to help me. Larry is a retired general contractor. Larry, is marvelous. I go to Larry with an idea and I say, Larry, here's what I want to do and here's how I think we can do it. And Larry always says, no. <laughs> but then he comes back with a better idea than what I had. It's just wonderful. Marvelous stuff around this church. If there's anything praiseworthy, Larry was the guy who figured out how to do it. So I told Larry, we need to put a new microphone here. I've got all the parts. And so, Larry, here's the problem. We're going to have to drill a hole here to send the cable down. Then we're going to have to find that cable, and we're going to have to figure out how to connect that cable to that cable, and we're going to have to figure out how to run it up through the wall. And we're telling the whole thing. And Larry's listening to me, telling him about how we're going to have to find the cable, because we're going to find the cable, and we're going to run it through the wall. And Larry walks around here, and he says, I found the cable. <laughs> like, oh, it's right here. Yeah. Oh, well, then we're going to have to figure out how to connect it. He goes, uh, no, we'll just put the new cable and connect it over there. We don't need the old cable. And I go, oh. <laughs> and so well, then, Larry, we're going to have to run it up through the wall and drill a hole here. And Larry goes, no, we'll just run it on the outside and we don't have to drill a hole. And Raymond goes, oh. And so a job that in Raymond's mind, and if Raymond had done it all by himself, would have taken half a day, took us less than half an hour. And Larry goes, chick, 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 and there it is. So Larry is like Jesus.
he actually is like Jesus in lots of ways. <laughs> but he's like Jesus in this way. I'm facing a test, and my lusts are now beginning to turn it toward a temptation. And I go to Jesus, and I say, Jesus, I'm being tempted. And Jesus says, I know. And what am I supposed to say? Oh. And then I go, Jesus, I can't do this. And he says, I know you can't, but I've done it. I've said no. And therefore, I can teach you how to say no. And what am I supposed to say? Oh. And he says, all right, now, trust me, Raymond, and I will lead you away from temptation. And lo and behold, what could have led to death is actually going to lead you to more strength and lead you toward joy and toward life. Don't you thank God for the fact that he gave us the scriptures? That he gave us the Bible to speak to life where we really live it? And if you have committed a sin, sometime in the last, what, several months, if you have committed a sin, understand that God also provides a way. Confession is our antidote. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we have claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The reason we can confess our sins and we can be forgiven is because Jesus, when he died on the cross, took the punishment for all of our sins. And God is therefore able to forgive us. And to confess just simply means to agree with God. To say with God what God says. God says this is sin. I go and I say, yes, what I did was wrong. And I don't excuse myself. Yes, I know I did it was wrong, but, 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 but my mother, but, but my dad, but my culture, but my society. No, that's not confession. Confession means I go and I say, this is what I did, and it is wrong. And God says, good. Now, we've passed another test. We can move on. Let's pray together.